my dear brethren and sisters and young people, last evening we were studying the evening in which those many people had come to the house in Capernaum, to the house of Peter and his mother-in-law, and how that in front of him there had been before he came out of that door a great number of people of all kinds of woe, and behind him there was hope and joy and a new optimism about their lives. And then we read in that verse 35, which began our reading tonight, the real source of that strength which he had caused to shine over them all in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. An interesting exercise we won't engage in tonight, but for yourselves, perhaps uh, tomorrow morning or tonight, will be to just find out how many times you can find references to the prayers that were offered by the Lord. You know, Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 and verses 1 and 2 that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And what he said, he lived. There are many examples of him praying. It's uh, very clear from the gospel records that the Lord did feel a power leave him when he healed. It wasn't as though having God's power, he could just uh, flick it on and off as he willed. There was a giving of himself in those miracles, as in fact it should and we would expect it to be. He was involved with them, and therefore when he did that great work of verse, 35, of verse 34, we can imagine that he retired to that house a very spent man. Not, of course, that he'd find immediate opportunity to go to rest. No doubt those within the house were full of excitement about all that had happened. For never had their area ever seen, never had the earth ever seen, such a stupendous event as had been seen outside the, the door of this otherwise inconspicuous home. So it was a most exciting night and they all would have wanted to speak to him about that. However, never mind how late that uh, meeting went, in the morning, a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place. You know, a man like that knows where his strength lies, doesn't he? You know, there are times in life when we have opportunities for that. You know, when after perhaps a heavy day, you arise, or you don't arise, but the eyes come open earlier than perhaps otherwise might have been the case. Your mind's active. You've been thinking over a lot of things. And you can do two things at that stage, can't you? Too often we do the second one. Instead of getting up and saying, well, I'll, I've got a nice quiet time to myself. I will develop my day right from the start. And take our Bible and seek our Heavenly Father in prayer. We don't do that as often as we would. What we almost always do is say, oh, well, I had a late night last night. I'll get a bit more sleep. That's what I do anyway. And yet really, we'd probably be a lot better if we did exactly what the Lord did here. You see, he had a true sense of his need. We have a need of that. When we go back into that world, we're going to be barraged with everything, aren't we? All the kinds of stuff that the world's interested in. From magazines, papers, evening and morning and radio and what have you. All barraging us as though it's really all important. 99% of it's a, a lot of nonsense. Totally related to the world that will pass away when the Lord comes. We've got a need to build ourselves up. This Bible school is precious for us. 
I believe the greatest security that this country has in the present situation rests with men and women who love the word of God in truth. I believe that. And in seeking our Heavenly Father in prayer and getting about His work will mean more than all the weapons of war. God knows what is going on. He knows your concerns. He knows the anxiety that goes through your hearts when there's another explosion in one of the major cities. He knows all of that. He knows the considerations we have for our children as we look ahead and we wonder, is this a fit place for our children's future? He knows all of those things. And I say again with every bit of sincerity, the greatest security that this country has is for those who love our Heavenly Father in truth to give themselves to His work, to seek Him earnestly, early, and to give themselves to His work with their children in fixed, solid principles, with their ecclesias, where they stand up boldly for that which is right and valiantly defend it, whilst endeavouring to bring more to the flag and banner of that which is right. In that rest, the security, I believe, of every country. God is not unmindful of your, of your situation. But we've got to be like him, up early and into it. And really mean it. Because he is there waiting for us. You know, it must have been a very delightful experience for the disciples to later contemplate when, in verse 36, we read that Peter, yes, Peter that was often up early, and often quick to react, as Simon and they that were with him followed after him. Well, they did when they got up anyway. They noticed the empty bed, and they wondered where the Lord was. They no doubt too had many stirrings of minds because of that unprecedented day of verse 34, a day that had never been so witnessed in the earth's history. And it happened just in their own little local circumstances. Where is this man? So they went to find him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. I wonder how it was, my dear brethren and sisters, when they came across the Lord, speaking to his father. That is a very holy consideration indeed. A thing they would never have forgotten. There must have been an intensity, mustn't there, in that conversation. Something that once you'd seen, you'd never forget. And it was because of seeing that on another occasion, as recorded in the 11th chapter of Luke in verse 1, a comment that's well worth putting alongside this one here. It was because they saw that on another occasion that they said, Lord, teach us to pray. You know how concentration wavers during prayer? And that's a very unsatisfying experience, isn't it? It's a distressing experience when sometimes the concentration completely fails and we fall asleep. That, unfortunately, is the experience of too many of us. Watch in prayer, says the Apostle Paul. There was no falling asleep here, although he'd had a late night and though he had an early morning. Yet he was up about his father's business and desperately taking hold of that power by which he knew all those things had been done that previous day. There was an absolute dependence upon his God. You know, to be in the company of a man of God is a very delightful experience. A person that's always reverting to his Bible, always with one eye towards you, but 
also half of his mind towards his heavenly father. A man who's cautious about what he says. A man who weighs his replies. We sometimes come across that in some measure in our ecclesial life, don't we? But here's a man that would have, uh, of course, outshone any that we have come in the company of. The disciples now were realising that they were in the company of indeed the Son of God. So they break off his meditations with a statement that all men seek for thee. But there's one, one duty even higher than that, isn't there? He had indeed been to the multitude in the night before, but he needed that strength. In fact, there was a second duty that was greater than healing bodily ailments. He said unto them in verse 38, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And in that there's a ring of those passages that we looked at before. Isaiah 61 and verse 1, where he was sent to preach the glad tidings. Or Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7, where he was sent to the cities of Judah, that he might therefore preach to them the message of salvation. So, verse 39, with that greater work, a work of preaching to the minds of men, that they might seek salvation, which is greater and more encompassing than the settlement of their present ailments according to the flesh. Therefore, he said, came I forth, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out demons. In that order, note, preaching in their synagogues and doing works of healing. And then in the next uh, passage, verses 40 to 47, we have a very remarkable incident indeed. 40 to 45, I'm sorry, did I say 47? It's not in your Bible. <laughs> Even the trouble these revised versions <laughs> <laughs> there's a number of miracles that occur through this section and uh, we of course have already had two we've had the healing of the unclean spirit the healing of Simon's wife's mother now we have the leper in verses 40 to 45 and then we will have the healing of the, of the paralytic in chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 so there's a series of varied Miracles, And make a note there that they're carefully chosen. There were, well, how many were? How many occurred the night before? There must have been many of them. Perhaps it was a hundred. Perhaps it was two hundred. Separate miracles that occurred the night before when he healed them. So it means that when therefore Mark or the other writers choose a particular incident, it is well chosen, isn't it? It's selected carefully amidst many hundreds of similar events. It's about a leper. The privations of a leper were terrible, you know. Come back with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus. That hopeless situation of the leper. It describes in Leviticus 13 the awful estrangement of the leper. We don't see them today, do we? I don't suppose they're found in this country either. They still are found. I'm told that there's something like about 10 million cases of leprosy still in the earth today. It's a terrible fact, isn't it? 
but certainly that has been eradicated from a lot of countries where before it was known well. In Leviticus 13 and verse 44, the privations of the leprous man are given to us. It says there, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall pronounce him utterly unclean. And I want you to notice and underline perhaps that word utterly because whilst things are unclean in the law, leprosy was utterly unclean. It was the worst case of uncleanness. There was death, there was issues according to flesh, but leprosy, utterly unclean. His plague is in his head. And the leper in whom the plague is, now this is real life. This might be your son, your wife, your husband. Your father, mother. Just think of it in terms like that. And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and his head bare, he had to shave his head, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, unclean, unclean, so that no one should touch him. All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall his habitation be. That's a terrible plight, isn't it? Very easy to read it. You think of that again, my dear brothers and sisters, in real terms. A terrible plight indeed. A wasting disease. That brought, a, that brought a man to an ugly grave. You know, it was incurable. That's made clear from two passages. The first in Numbers. Two very important passages in considering the plague of leprosy. Numbers 12 and 2 Kings 5. This is the case where Moses' sister Miriam was stricken with leprosy. And there we read in verse 10, the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. Numbers 12, verse 10. And behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow, the great leader's beloved sister. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, gone now is the competitive spirit. She has been smitten by an awesome disease. Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed, when he cometh out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried unto Yahweh, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. Moses realised there was nothing you could do about leprosy unless God should do it. It was humanly incurable. And you can notice from the words of Aaron there in verse 12 that she was as good as dead once that disease had struck her. Let her not be as one dead in whom the flesh is half consumed when he cometh out of his mother's womb. In fact, if you were to see a leprous child you would not be able to discern it from a normal child. But once it's realised that that child has got leprosy, it's realised that that went back to the time of its birth. And in a sense, from the very birth onwards, it was as one dead. 
And so it is expressed in that way. As though, as though the flesh was half consumed when he cometh out of his mother's womb. It was a hopeless case. So once he was proclaimed a leper, he didn't stay outside of the camp for a month, which would be a long time to have a sickness, wouldn't it? Or for six months, he was out there for life. The only thing good about it is that it would be a shorter life because leprosy was like death warmed up. It was as though the process of death was, was geared up and your life came to an early end. But it was so like the process of death itself. Just to make it clear again that leprosy was incurable. In the second of Kings chapter 5, this is the second reference, again one that you know well, it's about Naaman, isn't it? Have you noticed how the record teaches the incurable nature of leprosy? It came to pass in verse 7, 2 Kings 5 and verse 7, this is when the king of Syria has sent a note to the king of Israel because his little maid, Naaman's little maid, has told him that there's a prophet in Israel that can cure leprosy. Well, says the king of Syria, I've never heard of such a thing in my land. I have a great uh, respect for my chief captain Naaman, I would love to see him brought back to good health. So I will write to Israel. Well, write to who? Well, of course, the king writes to a king. So he writes to the king of Israel, the northern tribe, of course. And so he writes this letter to the king, but the king takes it as a grand insult to the king of Israel. It came to pass, verse 7, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That, thou, that, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. So he took it very hard, because he knew that there was no such thing as a cure for leprosy. Leprosy was the mark of death in one's flesh. Edersheim has an interesting co comment concerning leprosy. He says this, Whatever remedies, medical, magical or sympathetic, rabbinic writings may indicate for various kinds of diseases, leprosy is not included in the catalogue. Rabbinism confessed itself powerless in the presence of this living death. It's a very interesting statement. In the presence of this living death. So, the remedy for leprosy was quarantined for life. There's a lot of comparisons between leprosy and sin or the effects of sin. And on this transparency I've endeavoured to summarise these for really quite a fascinating story. Leprosy is not hereditary but it is congenital. That is to say it can be caught from the mother while the child is yet in the womb. And so, there's our first point of comparison. And so also is the process of sin unto death. We inherit a nature that is prone to sin. Leprosy is not uh, something to do with the skin, primarily, although its manifestations were seen on the skin. It's a very deep-seated disease. 
and so also is sin. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7 about that sin which dwelleth in me. It has imperceptible beginnings, as I mentioned to you about the infant that in fact has got leprosy, but it cannot be seen at that point. Yet as David came to realise later on in his life, in the tragic time of his sin, in sin did his mother conceive him, although he had not appreciated that as he did until that time. Leprosy spreads gradually. It is sinister. It gradually moves its way through the various tissues and organs of the body. And so also the Apostle Paul speaks in Hebrews 3 of the deceitfulness of sin. Point number five, it affects all members of the body. And you remember that classic description in Ecclesiastes 12, which sees the effects of sin under death gradually working their way through all the various members of our body. Sin is incurable, as we have seen from those two passages. And so also, of course, is uh, sin incurable, except it be for the remedy that God has placed, has given to us. So the Apostle says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver thee from this body of death? Sin and leprosy bring shame and disgrace, as Naaman experienced it in the chapter that we have seen, and as others did who were kept outside the camp. As also did Adam and Eve in the garden, when they were cast out of the garden, they felt their nakedness. Sin or leprosy, of course, brought death. And of course, sin also brings death. Sin, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth death. The wages of sin is death. Do you want that left up a little longer? So we turn back to our passage in Mark chapter 1 with a little bit of background material in our mind now and perhaps a little more sympathetic to be able to appreciate the sight that is before us. There came a leper. I wonder how old he was. doesn't tell us. There came a leper you know, the Sermon on the Mount had been given just before this. It might have been that he heard some of that because he could hear that being outside the camp, outside the city, by himself in the separate little fellowship that was the, the fellowship of lepers, of the outcast. And there was something that made him realise that his only hope in life was this Jesus of Nazareth. And look how he came. There came a leper to him, beseeching him. And as if that wasn't enough, kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. If thou wilt. It says it all, doesn't it? In other words, no one else even worried about him. It's a bit like when you see 20 blind men around a church in a depressed economy. Which one do you give your coin to? It's a hopeless position. What can be done for those people in that situation? It's hopeless. 
They're in a despairing situation. They've got incurable situations personally. And that's how this man felt. But he had not given up hope, this man. And he had seen what this uh, glorious Jesus of Nazareth had done. Is there perhaps hope even for a leper? He had reasoned to himself that if he could do this, and if he could do that, and if he could do this, and if he could do that, then God was with him. And clearly, therefore, he could cure his leprosy. So he came with certainty on the one hand about his power to do that, but uncertainty as to whether the Lord really wanted to do it. Luke 5 and verse 12 says that when this occurred, it was inside the city. I like that. This man was desperate. And he knew that what the Lord was doing was beyond the law. And therefore, whether he was inside the city or whether he wasn't wouldn't make an atom of difference. If Christ wanted to heal him, then he would be able to make him clean. I suppose he might have been a father. Imagine a father in that position that had children and a wife. And then, say the age of 30, 35, this terrible disease had manifested itself in his forehead. And he had to leave that family, leave his wife and his children, his mother and his father, his relatives, his city, his occupation. And he had to go outside the gate and be treated as an unclean man. What a plight. What a terrible plight it was. It's no wonder that we read in verse uh, 41 that Jesus was moved with compassion. There was no, com no question as to whether he wilt. He was moved with compassion and put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. He didn't need, you know, to touch him. Just by means of comparison, have a look at the incident in Luke chapter 17. Very interesting comparison. The same hand, of course, that had taken up his mother-in-law. Simon's mother-in-law, I should say, when she was with that fever on the bed. It was a means of conveying to her his, his love and his compassion and his power of God. And in Luke chapter 17, we have another group of lepers. came to pass, verse 11, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, unspecified, there met him ten men that were lepers. It was though all of the lepers met him, wasn't it? Ten as it was standing for a whole. And because they were lepers, my dear brothers, it was more than that. It was as though the whole of humanity, as it were, came to him. Because the leper is really the story of ourselves, isn't it? It's just that in him the lesson becomes plain that we must seek a curing of our human nature. It's wasting away. It's going, to be un it's going to lead to an unclean death in a cold and clammy grave. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off, insecure, in their unclean, 
quarantine state. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he never even went near them. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass as they went, they were cleansed. It was deliberate, therefore, in Mark chapter 1, when he put forth his hand and touched them. As Paul in Hebrews 4 verse 15 put it, he was touched with our infirmities. There was a deliberate link, a purposeful identification with the leper. And in terms of the law, it was a jeopardous thing to do. But Jesus deliberately did that, my dear brothers and sisters, that he might make the point. Was he defiled by that contact? You know what the law said about the one that touched the leper? Was he defiled by that contact? He certainly was not. But if we had asked the law, it would have said, yes, defilement is contagious. Haggai chapter 2 expresses it like that. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 12. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment and with his skirt did touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priests answered and said, no. That is to say, cleanliness, the sanctity of the meat that was being offered, was not contagious. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priests answered and said, it shall be unclean. So according to the law, uncleanness was stronger than that which was clean. That which was holy. Jesus has deliberately reversed that principle. The principle really, the truer principle, is shown by a reference back to Exodus. It's got interesting fellowship connotations. Exodus chapter 29. I'd like to talk about this later as the principle comes out. Exodus chapter 29. And verse 37. Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. The Lord quotes from these words in chapter 23 of Matthew. And verse 19. And he says that it is the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Remember? So that if one came with an offering that was improper... And he offered it upon that altar. That wouldn't defile that altar, would it? Because the altar was the purifying source. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. That's a divine principle. It's what our ecclesia stands for in its platform that is important. If one should so come in, unknown to us, unannounced by us, and he should have with him some doctrine or some ways of life that were impure. That's not going to defile our meeting. It's not improper that we should be there that morning. It's what that meeting stands for. It's the altar that is affecting the whole. It's an important principle. 
in respect to fellowship. And as far as we are concerned, our altar is Christ. And when we come Sunday morning, my dear brothers and sisters, you need not be concerned about who might be in that audience as though he's going to defile your fellowship with God. That's nonsense. Because the altar represents Christ. And it's with him that you go to meet. And one person come in, or ten, they're not going to defile the offering that you make that morning. Because your offering goes onto the Christ altar. And that's undefiled. It's an altar of truth. It's an altar of righteousness. And you need not be concerned about contamination. As sometimes we are led to believe. We need, my dear brothers and sisters, to have some of the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ here. You know, you can't really work in the truth unless you're prepared to touch some unclean things today. If you're going to preach the gospel today, you're going to come in contact with people whose lives are all kinds of things. There's lots of times where we are dealing with things that are less than pleasant. We need an optimistic, positive spirit in our work in the truth. That surely is the lesson here. According to the strictures of the law, the Lord would have left the leper and gone and done some other better thing, as it might have been termed. It's too dangerous to touch the leper. But he didn't. We cannot be so negative, even in our defence of truth, that we cannot do a constructive work. We've got to be prepared to lift up. We've got to see someone that's got a difficulty and work around that situation to bring them in because all said and done. We are all afflicted with leprosy. We're all in the same boat in measure. What we've got to be careful about too is that our own life is clean. And we're not to pull the wool over our eyes in respect to that. Or let our young people pull the wool over their eyes. There's no use us having loose ways in our young folks group and think we can bring others into that group. They'll foul the whole up. There must be in that group a devotion and a strength toward God. But if that is the case, and if the word is operative, then indeed we can cure. We can do what the Lord has given us an example to do here. These are the hopeless cases, aren't they? There were all those others, but this is a hopeless case. They went away cured, but, but the leper, he saw them go and he was still with his leprosy. Now the Lord has turned to him, or he has turned to the Lord. The Lord didn't send him packing and say, sorry, yours is too bad. You know, I can't do anything about you. He didn't do that. This was the tough case. And he deliberately put out his hand. And from him went forth a cleansing, purifying power. Whatever your makeup is in the truth, and we're different, aren't we? There's conservatives, there's liberals. Don't know where those terms are quite what we want. But there's some people that are more optimistic and positive than other people who perhaps seem to see the defensive side of the truth. You know, you don't want to despise each other. It's very easy to do that. Nor does one need to think that everything can easily be done if the environment, if the personal standing of yourself is in jeopardy. If we're living a loose and liberal life, don't think you'll bring anybody into the truth. 
your contact will take you outside. Nothing surer than that. Take a good look at who did the curing. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be foolish to take the example without noting who the example was about. But nevertheless, there is an application to ourselves. If we are walking in that way, then we're not to be negative-minded as those things that are difficult can't be done. This is a very wonderful example of the making right of the impossible and it's given just for that inspiration. There is the desperate need. The person with whom they were working was someone who wanted to see some good done. If thou wilt was the conviction. And Jesus never hesitated to put himself in his, posi in his position, moved with compassion. He knew that he too had been made sin, as Paul expresses it, that he might remove sin and be an offering for sin. So he put forth his hand and anyone around him must have surely squirmed with embarrassment and concern of the danger of the situation. But the word came, I will be thou clean. What a lovely expression. I will. If thou wilt, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. See the repetition of that word? That's what it's about. It's about cleansing. And he straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away. You know, that's the same word, sent him away, as what you've got in chapter 1 and verse 12. The Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. When the Lord sent him off, he really meant it. He sent him away. He said, now you, you go. I don't want you broadcasting this fact around. I've got something I want you to do. See thou say nothing to any man, verse 44, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Now that's very easy to read. But do you know what that means in real terms? Come back to Leviticus chapter 14. It was really an amazing series of enactments. Leviticus chapter 14. There are some 32, 33 verses that have to do with the, the enactments of cleansing of the leper who is in fact already clean. Leviticus chapter 14 verses 1 to 32 is a long list of items that were never used except in the case of Miriam and in the case of the man that we're looking at and perhaps others in the life of the Lord. It's doubtful of course if Naaman would have been concerned about this, these institutions. Moses said verse 2 this shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing he shall be brought unto the priest. The priest shall go forth out of the camp. So he wasn't allowed in. The priest had to go out to him. And the priest shall look and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds, alive and clean, and cedar wood, scarlet and hyssop. The priest shall command that the one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. 
As for the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and shall dip them of the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. The running water standing for the word of God. The earthen vessel, of course, standing for human nature. The dead bird standing for the death of the Lord. The living bird standing for the resurrected Lord. And he shall sprinkle, verse 7, upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. He that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and wash himself in water that he may be clean. And after that he shall come into the camp and shall tarry abroad out of his tent seven days. Still another seven days before he comes in. And it shall be on the seventh day that he shall shave all his hair off his head and either to grow in during those seven days. And his eyebrows, even all his hair he shall shave off and he shall wash his clothes. Also he shall wash his flesh in water and he shall be clean. Now you must think, well goodness me, that's surely enough because he was already cured. But look at verse 10. On the eighth day, he shall take two he lambs without blemish and one ewe lamb. That's three lambs. Two male, one female. And the females of the first year. And three tenth deals of fine flour for a meat offering. And the record goes on to say how they will be used. There will be a trespass offering, which is the great offering of the cleansing of the leper. And after that, verse 10, the blood of the trespass offering, with that the priest shall put it upon the tip of the right ear, upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the priest then shall take some of the log of oil and pour it upon the palm of his own left hand and again it would go to the right finger of his left hand and shall sprinkle the oil with his finger seven times before Yahweh. And verse 17 goes on yet. And of the rest of the oil that is in his hand shall the priest put upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the remnant of the oil, verse 18, was then poured upon the head of him that was to be cleansed. That's only the first offering. That's the trespass offering. Then in verse 19, we have one of the other lambs as a sin offering. And then at the end of that verse, a burnt offering, which would have been the third of those offerings. And then finally in verse 20, we have the meat or meal offering which used, of course, the flower of verse 10. What a statement. Now, bring that back. The rest of the verses, 21 to 32, have to do with what one offered if one was poor, as surely must, most lepers must have been. Bring that back now into Mark chapter 1 and verse 44 and see how that section comes alive again. The Lord would have known all those details perfectly. Had any of those things been necessary? None. What was the priest to say when he had had his seven days and when he had shaven himself? He would say at the various stages, he is clean. Remember that? That's what the, the priest was to do. But the Lord has already said that in verse 41. And saith unto him, I will... Be thou clean. There's the priest. In one action, he hath cleansed him forever from that which had been an incurable disease. 
Now he has to go off to the priest. Go and show thyself, says Jesus, to the priest. And offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. He didn't need one item of that. He didn't need the two living birds. He didn't need the cedar, the hyssop or the scarlet. He didn't need the three lambs. He didn't need the meal offering. He didn't need the oil. He needed none of it, did he? But he had to go to the priest and he had to present himself to the priest and he had to ask that he could go through that process. And Jesus was doing that. What for? Because he needed it? By no means. But because the priests needed it. What was that doing? It was teaching that that man was clean, but that institution needed to be cleansed. They needed to go through that process to learn how truly leprosy can be cured by the life of the Son of God. It was for them that he sent that man to the priests. Not that they might be patted on the back, but that they, in going through that process, might think to themselves, hey, just a minute, how do we do that? We know all the other parts of the law, indeed. But I don't know how we do that because I've never done it before. So they have to go and look it all up again. Even a priest who's about something in which he's rarely involved is not going to know all the details. And as he's doing that, he must surely have thought to himself, well, just a minute, how come uh, you are healed from this disease? And he'd say, well, I cried out to a man called Jesus of Nazareth. What did you cry out? I said, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. What did he do? He touched me. He what? He touched me. Has he got leprosy? No, I've got rid of mine. So the whole story would have been told to the priesthood who had their own problems, who needed to know what the true cure of, of leprosy, of sin and death was, that it rested with him who could put forth his hand to the leper. So it was a testimony unto the priests at that time that another priest had come who eclipsed their institutions. He says to him, why, why did he say to him rather, tell no man? Well, I think probably because it was going to become increasingly difficult for the Lord to, to go about his work if everything he did was heralded throughout the country. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15, we have another similar circumstance. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him. Matthew 12, 15. And he healed them all and charged them that they should not make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He shall not strive, verse 19, nor cry, nor neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. He didn't want the thing brazened around. You know, I doubt that this man actually ever got to the Lord. The language of verse 45 seems to imply that that man had seen right through the whole thing. Much as they, what do I want to go down to them for? I've never had their opportunity for all the years I've had this terrible disease. And I've never seen them cure a leper yet. Why do I have to go down there? I've got a greater work to do. I want to tell everyone else 
that's got this complaint or something similar. I want to tell them all where to come. Not to the institution of Moses, but rather I want them to come before you. He went out, verse 45, and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city but was without in desert places and they came to him from every quarter. Do you see what that record's saying, my dear brothers and sisters? Jesus could no more openly come into the city. In whose company was he then? He was in the company of the outcasts. While he was outside of the city, he was with all such as the lepers. For in every city there must have been some lepers. Remember that 17th chapter again? Have a look at the fellowship of the outcast. In Luke chapter 17. A very telling description. As he went on his way to Jerusalem and passed through Samaria and Galilee. There met him ten men, verse 11, which were lepers which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Do you know who was among them? There was a Samaritan among them. Verse 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And the record says he was a Samaritan. Jesus answering said, were there not ten? But where are the nine? There's only this one. They are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. That's a greater healing than leprosy. You see, that was the fellowship of the lepers, wasn't it? You can't help feel that that's implied in verse 45. This man has gone around and he's whipped up a, a whirlwind of interest. Lots of them would have known him. This is a leper and he could have chosen many other lepers. Would they not have wandered from one city to city? I mean, you've got to have friends in life, don't you? And who would understand your case more than another group of lepers? There was a little fellowship of lepers. There was ten of them. One was a Samaritan. You know, if it was inside the city, they'd spit at the Samaritan. They wouldn't sit at the same table as the Samaritan. But when you're an outcast, outside the gates of the city, just begging all together with a hand out, it doesn't matter whether you're a Samaritan or whether you're an Israeli leper. You've all got the same problem. And that really was the truth. Jews were no different to Gentiles. They were all smitten with the same leprosy, the same incurable disease. They all had the same need. So he was out there in the true field of the truth, outside the city, without the camp. He was finding disciples in the wilderness of all different types. Now there's another very interesting little story in the second of Kings. Another little fellowship of lepers. In the second of Kings, chapter 7. A most interesting little story. Elisha said, Hear ye the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh, Tomorrow about this time shall be, a, shall be a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a lord, on whose hand the king leaned, 
he answered with a piece of ridicule of Elisha, asking him a question which really meant that he disbelieved what Elisha said. And Elisha turned to him and he said, For your infamy, behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. Such were the circumstances up in the palace where the king uh, was and where this lord was leaning upon him. But it was a grim time and all around them was the Syrians and it was a time of great oppression and great famine. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? You know, that's, this little story opens up to you exactly how lepers felt. Why sit we here until we die? There's the camp of the Syrians down there. Why should we have any uh, patrimony and loyalties to this city here? What have they done for us? They cast us out. They couldn't care less about us. They go in and out of the city. They never notice it. Why should we have any loyalty to them? We might as well go down and join ourselves with the Gentiles. Even Samaritans, as it were are on at least equal terms with us. If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall under the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, well, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. See, they've lost every sense of physical prohibition. They're quite prepared to go down to the Syrians. They eventually worked it out quite correctly that they might as well be in the camp of the Gentiles as have leprosy and be endeavouring to seek access into the cities of Israel. So, into the fellowship of the leper, the Lord has gone in verse 45. He's out in the wilderness, in desert places, and they're coming to him from every quarter. There's a glorious picture, a symbolic picture of people coming from all nations, all smitten with the same deadly plague of leprosy that you and I know only so well. Now we turn quickly to Mark to insert another important reference. It's in Luke 5. Did I say Mark? We turn to Luke. And there in verse 16, after the healing of the leper, it says, And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. So just like we had at the end of that chapter 1, so also we have at the, sorry, at the end of the incident in Peter's house, so now we have another time where he gathers strength by going into the wilderness and praying. And I want you to notice what it then says in verse 17, because we're going to have to remember this and bring it back to Mark chapter 2. came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching, there were with their were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea. Even the big boys were coming down and Jerusalem from the very headquarters. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. He's cured the leper the noise has gone right through the land. And even now the top brass are coming from Jerusalem because they've got a problem. Well, they don't realise it. But the record in Luke is so sensitive to express it that the power of the Lord was there to heal them. If only they would. 
they were coming to see just what this was all about. So down came the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, the sitting by, which were come out of all those places. And so we come back to Mark and we see what happens. They soon make their presence felt, but not before another person does. This is the case of those five friends, isn't it? Again he entered into Capernaum after some days, after verse 45, chapter 2, verse 1. And it was noise that he was in the house. He hadn't been there for a long time. Been away in the desert places. The house, of course, would be the house of chapter 1, which came to be his home, clearly, see? He was in-house. And he'd hoped to come in there quietly. That was another reason why he didn't want noise abroad. He could never enter into a house except the place was likely to be almost besieged by people and causes and worries. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. I wonder if they'd all come to hear the word. No doubt many of them had come to see something. To see some piece of wonder working. He preached the word unto them. That was their true need. And so it had been going on for a long time. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to be present in a study class when the Lord was there and teaching? Have you ever really tried to imagine that? It's not easy, is it? You sort of what you do is you think of someone and you think, well, that's, that's a fairly high standard. That's a lovely stage of righteousness and holiness. But it's very difficult to really comprehend what it must have been like in that house. A house no bigger than this room. Just packed with people. Sitting down all around him. Crammed in. Just couldn't get another person in. In fact, they're all out the door as well. If you wanted to hear, you'd perhaps try and get round to one of the windows. But that would be difficult. Well, that was the circumstances the Lord was teaching. And it must have been with great awe and quietness, absolute reverence, that people listened to that greatest of all voices, greatest of all minds. From his mouth. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four, four good friends. You see, they must have talked it over. They'd been a bit tardy in not having done something beforehand, I suppose. But having talked it over and looking at their friend's plight, they said, look, there's no question about it. This man, we believe, can help you. Perhaps it had been he that had brought his four friends to the stage where they were prepared to do that. But alas, as they'd been a little tardy in the past, they again were too late this time. And when they came, they saw the place was full. And the place around the door was full of people too. There was no way in the world of getting through that door to bring him to him. Now that must have meant they were very compact, mustn't it? Must have been something like a Japanese train, I think. Because otherwise you would at least think, if you knock on people's uh, shoulders, that they would part and let you come in. Wouldn't you? I mean, that's what you'd do. So look, just a minute, we've got a very needy cause here. But on the other hand, would you do that to a study class? 
Would you interrupt a study class? I mean, there are chairmen that will. But would you... <laughs> would you do that to a study class, to sort of barge into a study class like that? You wouldn't dream of it, would you? And you'd be exceedingly out of place if you did. For your own cause, to interrupt a speaker in a study of the Ecclesia, how much more would you be less inclined to interrupt the Lord when he's speaking to me? Do you know better than he what's important? These four characters are intriguing. They saw that predicament, but they wanted a cure. They wanted that man to be able to get off his feet and to be able to enjoy with, with them all the, all the benefits of a restored body. So when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, and Luke's record in the fifth chapter <coughs> implies that it was made of tiles. The normal thing was that it was made of tiles and plaster with uh, beams of wood underneath that. And of course, over the years, uh, there would be lots of dust collecting on the top. And as you therefore started to chip away, those underneath would think, for goodness sake, whatever's going on up there? <laughs> it was a place where people walked, of course. They had the steps that went up the side of the house, didn't they? And they had to build a parapet around their houses. The houses, each one of them, looked like an altar of incense. The same words used, did you know that? As that rim that went around, the altar of incense. It's the same word to describe that parapet that went around the house. And what did they do on top of the house? What was it used for? What did Peter use it for? Praying. Praying. You see, it was a place of, of incense, of the offering up of prayers. Their, their homes, their homes were built like an altar of incense. Glorious thought, wasn't it, that God had there? Well, they'd gone up there with many prayers indeed. And they were not going to be persuaded from their uh, objective. And so they started to take away the tiling. And eventually one of the Pharisees is, is itching at his collar because there's things starting to drop down. He thinks, whoever's up there? And other doctors of the law are not too uh, graced by this either. As these determined people are prepared to interrupt that study class that they might bring to the Lord what they consider is an exceedingly important case. And when they had broken it up, a small hole, larger and then lumber, down comes the bed, wherein the sick of the palsy lay. What an impertinence! And if there had been a jam in the house before, how do you suddenly make room for a bed? As the people are cramming themselves back, can you imagine the grumbling and grizzling that was going on as those four rude and uh, crude men went about their work? And now that man, who before had had such determination that he desperately wanted to find his way before the Lord, is in all kinds of embarrassment. He's just come down now to the level at which every eye can see him. And he sees the grim faces of those who are in that room. They are not the slightest bit impressed. Who said your cause was so important? And we read in verse 5 that when Jesus saw their faith. Can you see faith? 
where you can see it in an action like that. One thing is for certain. Manners may not have been perfect. Timing, most uh, improbably, most incorrect. But one thing is for certain. You're not going to do that unless you believe that he can do it. Are you? This is like the man that had the leprosy. If he will, he can make me clean. No question that that group knew that. And it was their faith. See verse 5? It was not just the one. It was the whole group of them. As I said before, they had sat together and talked this over. And there was one thing for certain. They were not going to be set back. When he saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy. Be of good cheer, as Matthew puts it. In Matthew 9 verse 2. He was worried. Suddenly what he'd done has coming home to him. And the Lord takes all that embarrassment away. Son, what a lovely expression. He will use the term daughter a little bit later on. But you know, he's touched with his brothers and sisters. Who are my brothers and my sisters? My mother, brothers and sisters. They that hear the word of God and do it. It's a family with the Lord. When we use the terms brother and sister... Try to use them meaningfully, not just because they're what we do as Christadelphians, but because we really feel that way towards each other. So we ought to. You know, there's many tokens of lovely uh, fellowship and brotherliness that we have experienced among you. We are very touched by that. I want to tell you that. Some of our correspondence that we've had from, from our brethren and sisters in South Africa has been a very great cheer. I really mean that. A real cheer. We've had letters from some of yourselves and others in South Africa that we count among our most valued correspondents because of the heartiness of it, because of the love that is involved in those letters. You know, the Lord was like that. He loved that sense of brotherliness. Son, he said to this man, rude fellow as he might have been in the eyes of the others, son, be of good cheer. Thy sin." be forgiven thee. He didn't come for that. That's not what he came for. He wanted his legs made better. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Well, there was more than he present. You see, many had come now because of what had happened to the leper. This really was interesting to watch. Wouldn't you love to see a leper made right? What about then all the other miracles? It must be really wonderful to see them. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. You know, he was really answering the real plight of that man. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. And this is what they were saying. He could see faith and he could see these hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Remember what it said back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 17? Remember what it said? It said there that the Pharisees and the doctors of the law had come to see what was happening. That's what they'd come to see. And so he didn't, he didn't do something they could see. He took the man's sins away. The old crunched up legs were just the same. That's what they'd come to see. But their real need was not to see a miracle, was it? Their real need was to be cured in their hearts. The power of the Lord, it says, was there to cure them. 
He was acting not just for that man. He was acting for those who were there present with these foolish thoughts in their heart. Well, were they foolish thoughts? Isn't it correct that it is only God who can forgive sins? Yes, it was correct. Why were they then wrong? Because if they had seen a man that had gone right around Israel doing all those wonderful things, was he not of God? Nicodemus put it together very clearly and said, a man cannot do these things except it be given him of God. He could see that. He may have been one of the company. Who knows? He was a Pharisee of Jerusalem. He certainly could put that together and so, so should have they. If there he, therefore he elected this remarkable man of God to say, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee, he may well have the prerogative to do that. Well, the test, the matter can be put to test. Immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, verse 8, that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your heart? Oh, what an exposure. You know, that's what's going to happen to us at the judgment scene. Don't read that just as a narrative of the past. That's going to be in the future, when the secrets of men's hearts will be revealed, says the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 and verse 16. Imagine you at the judgment seat. The Lord tells you about, about those things that probably perhaps no one else even yet knows. It's as well to get them cleaned right off the, off, the, off the board, isn't it? Well before that, before the secrets of men's hearts are revealed, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier, verse 9, to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk? If we can do the second then is it not that God may have given to us the power to do the first? That's the point. The point that Nicodemus saw. And the Lord now makes that very clearly. And so verse 10, he follows it up. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth. Isn't that an interesting expression? It's taken straight from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. They would have recognised the language. But that thou may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately arose, and took up the bed, went forth before them all. And there was a way made, as they parted, now no, 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 no longer complaining and grizzling, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Now that's a most wonderful statement, my dear brothers and sisters. Just a few minutes to fill in what that term, the Son of Man, said. What it meant. The term Son of Man, of course, comes from Psalm 8. Let us have a look at Psalm 8. a most meaningful expression. Psalm 8 is a psalm by David, of course. I want to give you one other reference. It's in Matthew 
It's a very good reference to have in our minds first. In Matthew 9 verse 8, when they saw that and they glorified God, Matthew says that they wondered and glorified God who had given, notice this, who had given such power unto men. The reference is Matthew 9 verse 8. It's a very important reference. They glorified God, see the point, who had given such power unto men. They saw him then not only doing a miracle, but exercising God's prerogative in the forgiveness of sins. And so they glorified God in heaven above who had given such power unto Christ. Right, Psalm 8. What's that about? O Yahweh our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hath set thy glory above the heavens. When I consider, perhaps we'll read verse 2, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, though he be so high, yet out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mayest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, where his glory is, verse 1, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, there's our turn, the son of Adam, that thou visitest him? And the psalm is speaking about Messiah to come. For thou hast made him, the son of man, a little lower than the angels. That is, for a little time he has been made less than the angels. He was never equal with God. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. And has crowned him, however, with glory and honour. God's glory of verse 1. Who had set his glory above the heavens. That those men upon earth looked at and wondered at. Considered the heavens. The work of his hands. He's considered a son of man. He's come down to a son of man. And he has made him. For a little time less than the angels, but has eventually intended to crown him with glory and honour. God's glory and honour. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All the things that you have made. Sheep and oxen, beasts of the field. It's a commentary upon creation. All the things that God has made. Fowl of the air, verse 8. Fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. And astonished at the goodness of God, that he should give such power unto men, O Yahweh our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. What's the psalm about? It's about the, the magnificence of God, in all of his glory, that has given into a son of man, such wondrous power. That's exactly what Psalm 8's about. The glory which I had with thee before the world began is what Jesus described it in John chapter 17. And you know, those disciples got the point exactly, didn't they? They glorified God who had given such power to men. 
Now I don't think that they put Psalm 8 together with the Lord's comments as clearly as that. But the whole idea of Psalm 8 was clearly perceived by them. The very essence of it. Where else is the psalm used? Psalm 80 is the expression used. Psalm 80, just a couple of very important references. Psalm 80 and verse 17. Predicament in Israel. Israel has been burned with fire, cut down and perished. Verse 16. What's the, the cure? Verse 17. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand. Upon the son of man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. See the point again? Giving to him thine own power. Now, of course, the reference that Jesus particularly quotes from in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Intriguing chapter because it has to do with beasts. The, the nations of the earth, once put over the beasts, have now come to exhibit beast-like characteristics. There's a lion for Babylon, a bear for Medo-Persians, a leopard for Greeks, and another power that is so dreadful that it can only be described as dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. The fourth beast. And in the midst of that, we see one like the Son of Man. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And Psalm 8 is enacted before their eyes. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. A clear reference to Genesis chapter 1 when God gave dominion over man, to man over all the things that he had made. But because he has listened to the thinking of the serpent and accepted bestial-like thoughts for himself, he has in fact lost that dominion until the Son of Man comes, who is the second Adam and who fulfills the intention that God had with the first. And then God gives to him that original dominion, not now just over animals, but above all the animal-like kingdoms that he might bring them to God's glory. That is the picture of the Son of Man. When Jesus, therefore, was in that room, my dear brothers and sisters, and he said to those very scripturally minded people who were watching every word, he said to them, but that ye, and he was talking to them, the next statement he made to that man was not so much for his legs, but it was for them, because the power of the Lord was present to heal them. He said, but that ye might know that the Son of Man hath power on earth. Oh, isn't that a crisp statement? What a mind. What precision of thought is involved in that. That ye might know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith unto the sick of the palsy, Rise, take up thy bed. What's Psalm 8 about? It's stilling the avenger. 
Everything that raises itself up against God. What is the ultimate enemy? Is it the beasts of the earth? Even the lion, is that the ultimate enemy? No, Paul tells us in the first of Corinthians 15 about when he shall put all things under his feet. What does he say is the last enemy that shall be put under his feet? Even death itself. Where does death come from? Sin. We started with a leper and the story of sin. We have now come through to the time when the Son of Man, the fulfilment of Psalm 8, is able to still the enemy and the avenger. Not only can he cure the legs, not only can he cure the body, even of the leper, but he's able to take away that sin that is the ultimate enemy of the true and incurable leprosy of death. So in this very beautiful context of thoughts, we see one matter running into the other as it rises to a crescendo. And he shows that under God's glorious hand, all things have been given into his power. The Son of Man hath authority on earth.